Well, good morning. I don't know what I did to you people, besides subject you to listening to hundreds of hours of sermons over the last decade or so, and look what you've repaid me with. All, all these diapers, you need to be buying baby wipes, people. Baby wipes, youth, kids, teens, infants. Look at your parents and say, we need... We need more baby wipes. But this is all going to a good cause. That's what I keep telling myself uh, after the uh, statement that Lynn made last week and the attempts to have me wear um, some diapers if, if we lose. And so we're not going to lose. That's what I, We're not going to lose, people. Bring the baby wipes. Uh, this is going to go to a good uh, cause uh, for the Legacy Pregnancy Center. So please continue to bring these all throughout September and October. And at the end of October, we'll, we'll count them up. We'll send them over. And then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth from somebody sitting over in that area. I'm not sure how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. You know what? The thing is, um, we're going to give glory to God no matter what happens. And we're good at doing that, aren't we? We're good at giving glory to God, of thanking Him, of praising Him for things that He does. And sometimes I think we may even go overboard. Sometimes I think we may even give God credit for things that He doesn't have anything to do with. I don't know for sure. But I'm, I'm not necessarily one to be driving through Walmart and seeing that, that, that open parking spot up at the front and think, God did that. But maybe He did. Sometimes we like to assume that, that God works in some ways that we can't even imagine, like the light turns green when we're in a hurry. Right, that things will work out just right. That that somehow you know we'll get divine intervention over a test that we didn't study for, or that we make that three pointer because God wanted us to make it. And and I I do tend to lean on the side of I'm going to give God credit for things if I'm not sure. But but here's the thing. I think we should consider the things He doesn't do. How do we give credit to God for things that He doesn't do? In fact, I think we need to accept, embrace, and dare I say praise a God who doesn't. I think many of you are familiar with the second book of the Bible, uh, but before we get into that, we have to jump back for just a few pages and look at the opening book. It's Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. And it's odd that it only took 50 chapters and really just a few minutes, it seems like, before the world starts going crazy. I've been reading a book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and he talks about you know, the nature of man, God's human nature. And he talks about how the fact that all of creation follows God's nature, the laws of nature, except for humans. A tree does what it is supposed to do. Clouds do what they're supposed to do. A rock does what it's supposed to do. And then humans, we have these things that we ought to do, but we don't really do them. And so all throughout Genesis, we have all sorts of dysfunction and sin and violence and murder and lying and adultery. And it's really, it's so bad that if you, if you put up the book of Genesis next to an R-rated movie, 
that R-rated movie is going to look more like a Sunday, uh, a Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, there's just some crazy dysfunction going on, so much so that the second book is just, it's basically called Exit. It's like, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this mess that we're in? And so we open up uh, in chapter uh, 1 of Exodus, and we're going to get the list of the the 12 sons of Jacob uh, who had uh, moved uh, to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And ultimately what we learn is that they are fruitful and they multiply so much so, so much so, that the Pharaoh looks at them and says, we got problems. So listen here, I want to pick up in verse 8 of Exodus 1. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so if Pharaoh has this broad idea, this group, that they're growing, they're getting too big, they're going to be strong, they're going to be able to ally with our enemy, and all of a sudden we're going to be in big trouble. So let's, let's enslave them, let's abuse them, let's mistreat them. So he began conniving, finding different ways in which he could suppress and oppress and ultimately just, just tear apart this group of people. And he does it in some pretty disgusting and conniving ways. He goes to, to the ladies who are helped delivering these, the babies of these Israelites. And he says, hey, you know what? We really, we really don't need all of these babies. There's plenty of them. So um, why don't we just commit mass genocide? And it's in the most horrific way. He says, I want you to take the babies, just the boys, We'll keep the girls, but, but, but the boys, what we'll do is, you just, after they're born, just drown them. Just, just throw them in the Nile. It'll be like a, a sacrifice, an offering to our God of the Nile. Just, just drown the babies and everything will be better. That's what he did. That's what his great plan was to God's people. So we open up in chapter 2, and in the midst of this order of brutality, there's two Levites that, are ma- that marry, and they have a child. Now, they were supposed to throw them in the, mile, the, the Nile. That was the mandate. That's what Pharaoh said needed to happen. But, but they didn't quite throw him. They, they placed him. And he wasn't just floating around. They had him in a basket. They made a basket. They put this little baby boy in it, and they gently shoved him off, and he floats down the river, and who finds this basket? Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, orders it to be brought to her. They bring it to her, open it up, and there is a little baby, and she sees that little baby and says what? I want to keep it. Dad, can I keep it? And so she names the child Drew. Literally drew. I mean, you're thinking, oh, with Moses. No, it's, that's, that's our rendering from it. But she calls him Moses, which means I drew him out. So she, she has this little child. She takes it in. She raises it with the help of, of the mother. 
And that little baby is going to grow up, and we're going to know him as Moses. And we don't get a whole lot of Moses' early years, but we do get a little snippet of who he is and what he's like, and maybe what the palace has made him to be. He's angry, he's bitter, he's violent, and he's vengeful. And we find this in verse 11 of chapter 2. Listen to this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking this way and that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, you've heard that before, and that was just one little sentence. And I don't want to go into great detail or depth, but all we know, like, don't forget, he just committed murder. He just killed some. We don't know how he did it. We know that he killed someone and then he hid the body. He buried them. Right? The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting this fellow Hebrew, your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, What? I did, must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And we're going to get a little bit more. He's going to meet Zipporah, and there's a little more into that. But I want, to, I want to freeze for just a second. I want to think about this. We talk about all the things that God did, and all the things that God does, and all the things that he is. What's going on right now? A Hebrew boy that was saved by the ingenuity of his parents and certainly by the grace of God, he's floated down the river, he grows up in a palace, he's well-educated, and he's mean and violent and a tyrant, and he's a murderer and he's wanted by the man whose house he grew up in, which happens to be the Pharaoh. God what? God did? Where is God in all of this? And why is God allowing this to happen? Why does he allow the genocide to happen? But even more so, why is he allowing this Hebrew to go around killing people and burying their bodies and running away? It's really bothersome. I, I think you should be a little upset by this. It, I mean, we, we hold up Moses as this great leader, but let's look at him. He's a murderer, and he's a coward. He kills somebody, he buries the body, and then he runs away into the desert to hide. And what does God do? This just really baffles me. Moses is going to meet and marry Zipporah. They're going to have a son. And Moses is going to call him Gershom, which means foreigner. He says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. What's God doing in all of this? He sends him off. He lives in the desert. He's going to meet and marry a woman. They're going to have a child. What happens 
Does not the, the blood of the Egyptian cry out? And God does nothing. So chapter 2 ends with this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Adam. Excuse me, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So lots going on, even in the opening chapters of, uh, of Exodus, Egypt is now in the rearview mirror, or at least Moses thinks. He's now living out in the desert, raising a family with a kid who he calls the foreigner. Because that's how he feels. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that, that God seems absent in a lot of times, in a lot of ways, and we don't really catch that. Because we say, oh yeah, you know, God, you know, he was there when Moses was born and he was there in the burning bush. And he's... But there's these long periods of silence in which God seemingly does nothing. And then we get to the most memorable part of Moses' life, and that's in chapter 3. And we're going to spend a lot of time in there this morning, so if you want to continue on reading with me in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Exodus. So Moses is now a shepherd because of his father-in-law Jethro. He's attending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, this bush that doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within that bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, here I am. Don't come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Wow. So it's finally come to this. You see, he could run from Pharaoh. He could hide from the Egyptians. He could stay out in the desert. But before long, God was going to come after Moses because of what Moses had done. I don't know if you want to call it good intentions that Moses was trying to help out his fellow people, but the result is he killed someone. And surely God is now going to come and call him to account for this. He is going to wreck him and destroy him and said, for what you did, here's what I'm going to do to you. That's surely what's going to happen. I mean, he's using a burning bush. This, this has to be what's next. But instead, listen to this, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Jumping down to verse 10. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What? 
So pretend for a second you don't know the story. Pretend for a second that, that you haven't read the rest of Exodus and that you don't know what's going to happen. The Red Sea hasn't been parted. The manna uh, has not fallen onto the ground. Nothing, there's, none of this has taken place. God goes to a murderer hiding out in the desert and said, guess what? You are going to lead my people out of Egypt. I've chosen you. Now we, we could celebrate what God did, but what I'm really concerned about is what God didn't. That's what really gets me. Moses understands this because in verse 11, he starts as one of many rebuttals. And I want you to, to try to use your fingers to count all the different times that Moses is going to have a discussion with God and, and try to make an excuse and talk himself out of this. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He knew what we all should be thinking. Moses is not the right guy. The bush should be a few, you know, pastures over. Je Jedediah over there, he's the guy. Get him, but not me. How did you find me out here? I've been hiding. Maybe, maybe from you. Maybe Moses was hiding as much from God as he was from Pharaoh. So he says, why are you? And I love this. God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You will worship God on this mountain. He says, I'll give you proof. I'll give you proof that I'm God. That you're going to come back through and you're going to worship here on this mountain. And I'm like, that's, that's a terrible idea. This is not a good idea at all. Your proof that I can go into Egypt and bring the people out is that when I get here, I'll worship here and I'll know that I'm the one that was supposed to go in and bring them out. It's like, how did, you know, God comes and says, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sending you to Africa. And he says, here's proof. When you get to Africa, then you'll know that I was the one who sent you. It's really kind of crazy. But, but listen on. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So by the way, this is number two. Remember, no, number one is, is who am I? And now he says, if I go to the Israelites, who do I say that you are? And I love this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then, we'll skip over this, but there's four paragraphs, seven verses, in which God is going to talk about his power and his might and how it's going to be displayed. And so we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses says, get your fingers ready, number three, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? I love this part. This is so great. God is so creative. What's in your hand? And he says, a staff. And he says, I don't think so. He says, throw it on the ground. 
So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. I love this. And he ran from it. That makes that reminds me that like Moses, he's a good man. Like he knows better. The, the staff becomes a snake. He sees the snakes and he runs away. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. I don't know why there's a period here and the next sentence just follows. Something is missing from here. I want to know what is missing from here because it says, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And the very next statement is, so Moses reached out and took a hold. No, he didn't. Like, I think there was a little bit more of conversation. I don't know how long it took for him. He ran away how long it took for him to go back slowly, determine which end of the snake was the tail, and decide, I'm actually going to reach out and grab it. I have no problem with that being a 30-minute ordeal. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm really good with that. In fact, if he ran right back to the snake and grabbed it, something's wrong with Moses. So he does eventually, he reaches out his hand, he took hold of the snake, and he turned it back into the staff in his hand. What relief he must have had. That was number three, by the way. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, clearly God understands that Moses is not fully convinced even after wrangling a snake and turning it back into a staff. The Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous and it had become white as snow. I kind of think that God should have stopped there. If that didn't freak out Moses enough, he could, every time he needed to be reminded, he could look out and see his leprous hand. And God says, okay, now put it back in. I bet you he was quick to do that. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe in the second. But if they don't believe in those two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, but I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So Moses is now arguing with God and basically says, God, I, I, I stutter, I'm not the right guy. You need to find somebody else. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, Please send someone else. Now, I love looking at sunrises. It requires that I have to get up early than my body wants to. But on those, those mornings where I can see the sunrise, I see that just the beautiful colors and, and the dawning of a new day, and it fills me with hope, and I say, God did that. And I've been around for more sunsets than I have sunrises. I've watched a lot more of them. And, and that's something that Hobbes has on almost anybody else. 
I'm convinced that we have the best sunsets around. Beautiful. And the colors, it's just because it's flat. It is so stinking flat around here. There's nothing in the way from seeing that, that sunset. And just watching all those vibrant colors just shoot across the sky. And I'm like, God did that. And I have, I have been out in nature and, and stared at the trees and looked at the mountains and, and heard the birds and said, God did that. But I am more amazed and impressed and more grateful at what God didn't. And that's where I want to close out this morning. It's talking about a God who doesn't. A God who didn't. A God who wouldn't. A God who hasn't. And a God who won't. You see, the, the opening chapters of Exodus... Just give us a glimpse of what's going to happen the remaining 37. We get these three chapters of this, but it's going to go on and on. And over and over again, it starts off with Moses. He's doing what every good Jew seems to do in Exodus. He complains, and he whines, and he makes excuses. And this is just, he's already seen a burning bush. God has called to him. He says, you're on holy ground. And then we get five excuses. He has watched a staff turn into a snake, turn into a staff. He's watched his hand go from normal to leprous, back to normal again. And then he's going to talk about what he's going to do, turning water into blood. Over and over again, we get this all these amazing things that God can do, but what's most amazing is what God didn't do. And it's what should fill you with hope. Now, we are going to get a line that's really interesting. The start of verse 14, it says, God's anger burned against Moses. That's what he did do. But what he didn't do is what some of us probably would want to have done. At the very least, just walk away. God, just walk away. There's somebody else. And that person will be better. But he didn't. You see, here's what's so amazing about God. It's not just the things that he does. It's the things that he doesn't. I don't know if you found yourself running. Maybe you're in that desert. Maybe you're hiding from your past. Maybe you're living with shame. Maybe you're listening to Satan as he describes and details all of your inadequacies. All the ways that you're no good. And God doesn't. And that's the most beautiful and wonderful phrase that maybe has ever been uttered. That God doesn't. And He won't and He wouldn't and He hasn't. He doesn't give up. 
He didn't give up on Moses. The murdering Moses. The ill-equipped Moses. The complaining, excuses-making Moses. He didn't give up. And Moses is going to go back to Egypt. He is going to deliver his people. And they're going to watch ten amazing miracles take place in which their enemy just gets trounced to nothing. And they end up going out, leaving where they have been slaves. And by the way, on their way, God disposed the Egyptians to give their, their jewelry, their gold, to the Israelites before they left. They basically have sacked the Egyptians. They have looted everything. They're leaving there. They're not going to be slaves anymore. They get to the Red Sea, and what do they do? Why did you bring us out here to die? Is it, was there not enough room in Egypt to bury us? And they'll complain. And God is going to to part the waters so they're going to walk through on dry land. Pharaoh and his armies are going to come after them. He's going to cause the water to go over them. It's going to destroy them. Miriam is going to sing this beautiful, amazing song. And two verses later, they say, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Why did you bring us out here to die? And it's amazing about what God is going to do He's going to give them the manna. He's going to give them quail. But what's most amazing, and if you're a parent, you understand this, it's what he didn't do. If my kid had done that to me, we, you know, we, 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 we drive to Arlington. We go to Six Flags. We have the most amazing day ever. We're getting in the car, and one of the kids says, he's on my side. He's breathing my air. We're going to go get something. I don't want to eat there. I want to eat here. And part of me said, I'm thinking about all the good that I did. Maybe the best thing that I did is the thing that I didn't do. Is pull over that car and leave the child. And the most amazing thing is that that's what God doesn't do for us every day is He doesn't leave us. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't say, I'm done with you. He doesn't turn you into a pile of ashes. Which maybe Moses deserved, and certainly most of the Israelites deserved, and it's absolutely what should be coming my way. But God doesn't. And so the next time you're kicking yourself and you're thinking you're worthless, I just want you to know God hasn't given up. And He won't. There's nothing that you can do that God will say, you know what, I'm done with you, it's over. I've had enough of this. God does. And on those really special days, really every day, God doesn't. He doesn't leave you. And I want you to be reminded of that. Through your hardships and heartaches, we have a God who makes promises and He doesn't break them. He is good and faithful. And so this morning, I want you to be reminded of that faithful God 
who loves you and who is calling out to you this morning. And I want to ask you to accept that call this morning as we stand and sing.